I will set out for Gaul myself and confront our enemies. They will learn the error of their ways. But why might early Christians have called Nero the Antichrist? I will quash my deluded enemy, not with the sword. I intend to sing to them. Nero has lost his mind. Well, welcome back to the life of Caesar. With me again today, the man who looks like he's ending up as my new co-host, uh, author Stephen Dando Collins. He was on recently to talk about the Emperor Constantine and his latest book, Constantine at the Bridge, how the Battle of the Milvian Bridge created Christian Rome. But we dragged him back on to talk uh, again this time about a book that he wrote some 10 years ago uh, called The Great Fire of Rome, uh, because uh, that's where we're up to with our little Nero podcast, The Great Fire of Rome. So thank you so much for taking time out again to chat with me today, Mr. SDC. My pleasure, Mr. Cam. Um, Now, look, if there's one thing that I think most people know about the Emperor Nero. It's that he fiddled while Rome burned and then he falsely attached the blame to the Christians. Let me stop you there, because both of those uh, are, in my opinion, myths. Uh, That's what makes this such an exciting story. And, you know, over the course of these shows that we've been doing, Ray and I, looking at the common stories surrounding, particularly guys like Caligula and Nero, when we drilled down into it, it, almost every case we're like, well, you know, some of the stories that you hear don't really seem to be true. And and some of them appear to have been maybe relatively mundane things that happened, jokes that took on a life of their own, uh, you know, uh, Caligula making his horse a senator or something like that. Yeah. Um, or, or battling the gods of the sea or, you know, shells and all these sorts of stories. They seem to have, have, have been some, somehow spun out of maybe something innocuous that happened or they're just straight up, you know, propaganda and fabrications as far as we can tell. Um, and th- this Nero stuff is is fascinating because, as I said, like even I talked to people in the last couple of weeks, friends, family who I know have zero interest in uh, ancient Rome, but everyone has heard this story, particularly if you grew up, I guess, in one of the Christian denominations, you know, you've heard about this. Um, and obviously it could never have happened. I don't think the fire happened at all because we know that Augustus 50 years earlier said he found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble and marble can't burn. So it's all <laughs> fake news. There was no fire. Fake news spread by the liberal media who are coming for your guns down in Tasmania. Stephen, you still have guns down there? Uh, it's all your well, fault. I'm sure, I'm sure some people do. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's your fault that we got rid of all of the guns, isn't it? Yes, yeah, true. 30 odd. I don't how long ago that was. Good day. It was too. Well, not that, but getting rid of the guns was good. You know, I see so, these marches going on in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane recently, and I'm like, thank God we don't have easy access to guns. Well, apparently the last figures I read, there are more registered guns in Australia now than at the time of the Port Arthur massacre. That's true. I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah, we, we haven't kept them out of people's hands altogether. No. 
So my first question is, did Nero have a time machine? Um, otherwise, how would he get his hands on a violin, which wasn't invented, a fiddle, which wasn't invented for another 1,500 years? Now, I'm sure as part of your research when you were doing this book, you watched the uh, 1965 Doctor Who serial, The Romans, where the Doctor gives Nero the idea to burn down Rome, a very important part of critical history research, that episode. Have you ever seen that episode? Uh, big fan of Doctor Who. I don't recall that one in particular. It's uh, a William Hartnell episode. I think it was uh, season two. He's... Uh-huh. Um, He's uh, 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 talking to Nero and he takes his his spectacles off because uh, he doesn't want them to see that he's wearing spectacles, obviously. He holds them behind his back. Behind him, there's a map of uh, the the plans for the new Rome that Nero's planning to build. And uh, the sun comes through the window, goes through the doctor's glasses, uses them as a magnifying glass. The, the 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 map catches on fire and and uh, Nero's like oh, what a wonderful idea you're a genius doctor um, anyway we'll get to the fiddle and the time machine and all that kind of stuff um, soon I want to talk about uh, let's start with the fire okay and and drill down on um, what we know what we don't know uh, Tacitus who I think you point out in your book would have been about nine years old when the fire broke out. Uh, in the annals says that Nero was in Antium, modern day Anzio on the west coast of Italy, playing the lyre when the fire broke out. It's about 51 kilometers away from Rome. Now, we talked in our last episodes about Nero about how he was starting to get more into performing in big public arenas in front of the public. He was feeling more confident, he was uh, relaunching his musical career. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think was happening with that? What was he? What was going through his head? Nero um, was was a became obsessed with the with the belief that he was a brilliant singer and uh, performer and player of the lyre, but also a brilliant chariot racer. Uh, two very Different pursuits. Chariot racing was very dangerous. Mm. You could be killed. Mm. Um, and I, I don't reckon. Know. I don't recommend trying to do them at the same time. Playing the lyre on the back of a chariot never a good yeah. idea. So uh, AD sixty four is the, the time of the Great Fire. But three years later, uh, Nero goes to Greece and he's instructed the Greeks to run all four of their Pan Hellenic games in a row so that he can compete and win them all, the chariot races. But in those days, and I think we should bring it back, uh, there were at the Olympic Games uh, competitions for uh, playwrights, for actors, uh, and so on, and uh, heralds was another. Um, And uh, strangely, uh, Nero would uh, win all of them. And who would have thought? thought. Uh, So he, uh, obviously those around him uh, 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 supported his belief that he was such a huge artistic talent. So in AD 64, uh, in the summer, he starts competing in the competitions, the the annual competitions in Italy. And uh, the first one he goes to is at Naples. And uh, lo and behold, he wins, so he's feeling rather good. Uh, and then, as you say, he goes to Anzio. He was born in Anzio, and he, he stays in the, uh, the villa, the waterfront villa, which was huge. Uh, it was half a mile long, you know, magnificent. Uh, and it's so big that he's actually built a theatre in there, and he allows the locals to use this theatre 
uh, throughout the year. Uh, but of course, he's now going to uh, perform uh, in the annual competition in his own uh, theatre, not an amphitheatre, a, a Greek style theatre. And on the night of July 19, uh, the year 64, uh, he competes and wow, he wins again. <laughs> and uh, as you say, he plays the lyre and sings. And the song that he sings is about the fall of Troy. And it's a, you know, it's a well-known, you know, uh, a, a, a local hit you know, of the time. And uh, everybody knows it. And the judge just thinks he's done a wonderful job and he wins. Uh, so as he goes to bed, he's unaware that uh, at Rome, uh, the great fire is just breaking out in the um, Circus Maximus. So this whole thing with him um, performing music and and riding chariots and, and wanting to be um, uh, recognised as the uh, greatest uh, uh, person on both of those uh, t- uh, uh, tasks, you know, like we've got to remember this guy's in his, uh, what is he now, sort of late 20s? 26. Yeah, 26. okay, mid-20s. Yeah. He's... he's uh, he just sounds like he's bored. He's bored with being emperor. Um, he's looking. He, he, you know, it's a job for him. It's it's not his not his calling. He's not uh, passionate about it. hadn't he's, hadn't expected to get the job. Got it at the age of uh, sixteen, I think. Yeah. And uh, his mother had uh, you know muscled him into the job so that she could she thought you know, run the empire through him. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, it, Fortunately for Rome and the Empire, uh, he had two very good assistants, Seneca, his former tutor, mm-hmm. who he made his chief secretary, and he became sort of like his the secretary of state. Mm. And uh, Barus, the, uh, the, one of the prefects of the Praetorian Guard, who was uh, like his uh, defence minister, and mm. they were r- really good at their jobs. Uh, and so he didn't have that much to do. They'd just bring, you know, just bring him things to sign up on. Mm. So as you say, I'm, I agree. I think he became bored and uh, ha- having ne- never had any uh, desire uh, to rule. Um, he was also very interested in architecture. And at this time, uh, he had commissioned two, uh, one was a freedman, one was a, a senator, uh, who had uh, great uh, ideas, architectural ideas, to build a huge canal uh, to the Tiber from uh, Lake Avernus in Campania. And work had just begun on this in, in July uh, AD 64. Uh, and he was very excited about this uh, and all things architectural. And uh, he just completed his new palace, the, the transitorium, which uh, went from one side of Rome to the other, across the valley, from the Palatine Hill, where the, all the other uh, original palaces were. And so he designed this with the help we think maybe of these uh, these uh, two uh, engineers, and uh, he was very pleased with himself. Uh, this uh, massive thing that went uh, you know, through the carved through the middle of Rome, and uh, so he he thought he was something of an architect as well. It's it sounds to me like a midlife cri- a midlife crisis, um, and and you know, twenty six sounds young for a midlife crisis, but. He didn't live that much longer, so it was actually a lot later than midlife. But he, yeah, yes. and he'd been in the job a decade. Yeah, and yeah, like when you when you read uh, some of the history books, um, and and particularly if you read Tacitus and Suetonius and Dio and these guys, you know, it's it's often portrayed that he was. It's kind of crazy. It's it's ridiculous that an emperor is out singing and performing and racing, and it's ridiculous. 
but you know, I think of it as this kid, you know, he didn't, he didn't ask for this. He didn't want this. He's thrust into this like well, so many others before him. And he's like, well, I'm not, I'm, he's looking for purpose. He's looking for meaning in life. What, what, what am I, what am I really excited about? What do I enjoy? Well, you know, I did that. I was working at Microsoft when I was 34 and I was like, eh, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. This is uh, not fulfilling me. I think I'll go out and, I don't know, talk about history for a living for the rest of my life or something. I get, I get the impetus to, to look for something that's exciting and fulfilling. I don't think it makes him crazy. It's maybe, you, you could say maybe it's a tad irresponsible, but, um, but he, it always gets portrayed as a sign of his madness, you know, that he wants to do these things. I, I don't read it that way at all. How about you? No, no. And in fact, he was hugely popular with the, the ordinary Roman people. And they yeah, they it. loved it. They absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the elite thought it was horrendous. Yes. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and, and particularly Tacitus, we've often said on the show, Tacitus is a very, very uh, staid, boring, conservative old uh, Roman who frowns at, uh, he reminds me of Cicero a little bit. He's just frowning at anyone wanting to have a good time and in celebrate he, life. He, he, was a, he was a traditionalist. Yes. And this was going totally against tradition. Yes. And, uh, you know, Nero's popularity, he was the last of the Caesar family. And uh, his, his popularity went back to his uh, grandfather, uh, Germanicus. Germanicus yes. Caesar was, uh, he and his wife, uh, uh, Agrippina, the, uh, the uh, elder, were like the JFK and, uh, and Jackie Kennedy of their era, hugely mm. popular. Mm. And um, uh, wherever they went, they were mobbed. And, uh, you know, Germanicus backed it up by being you know, a very brave and, and successful general, mm. you know, poisoned and at the age of 33. Uh, so when his son came to the throne, everyone was had huge expectations, but unfortunately that son was Caligula. Mm. And uh, uh, so, you know, we, we, we know how, how that ended. Um, so when Nero came to the throne, again, huge popularity, we, we another descendant of Germanicus. Mm. And that that lasted, you know, after he died and the circumstances of his death are, you know, are, are shrouded in a certain amount of mystery. But after, he, let's say, he did die in uh, four years after the Great Fire, um, two pseudo-Neros popped up around mm. the empire and mm. people flocked to them. Ah, mm. Nero mm. Is, is alive, he's not dead at all. And mm. another came, appeared uh, in, in the reign of Domitian. Uh, so with the ordinary people uh, and the slaves, uh, he was hugely popular. But the elites, uh, so, yeah, this, this is not, this is not, not the, the sort of life that we, uh, we expect our yeah. emperor to lead. Tacitus writes, a disaster followed, whether accidental or treacherously contrived by the emperor is uncertain, as authors have given both accounts. Worse, however, and more dreadful than any which have ever happened to this city by the violence of fire. Nero at this time was at Antium and did not return to Rome until the fire approached his house, which he had built to connect the palace with the gardens of Messinus. It could not, however, be stopped from devouring the palace, the house and everything around it. However, to relieve the people, driven out homeless as they were, he threw open to them the Campus Martius and the public buildings of Agrippa and even his own gardens and raised temporary structures to receive the destitute multitude. Supplies of food were brought up from Ostia and the neighbouring towns and the price of corn was reduced to three sesterces a peck. 
and he didn't get the he didn't get the message. I mean, that, that sort of sounds like um, he didn't he wasn't too worried about it or was disinterested. He was obviously, as I said, fifty odd kilometers away. Doesn't get the message till the next morning, and then he kind of does go well. You know, we have people to deal with this. We have the yeah, urban prefect. reaction. We have yeah, the vigilies. And until he finds out uh, that his own buildings are under threat, and then that, that uh, as you say, he, he felt okay. You, you know, we've got got the resources to deal with this. We've had plenty of fires in Rome before. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, the Caelian Hill had been totally destroyed in, in I think AD thirty. Uh, and um, so, but then when he when he realizes his own, his own property is under threat, he decides he'll come back and take charge of uh, the firefighting. And, and obviously, and the relief measures that you mentioned too. And obviously, he realized at that point he realizes that um, it's out of control. Like they haven't got it under control. It's far worse than he expected it to be. So he rushes back, but it takes some time, obviously, to to get back to Rome from where he is. Um, you you right? Well, comes back by water. Yes, comes back by water uh, up, up the Tiber and, and then overland for them. Yeah, you know, for a, a few miles. Uh, so you, know, you can imagine the sight with the, you know, the, the, on the horizon that you know, uh, where Rome is. That's you know, it's just a glow. You you really put it in perspective in your book. You say Rome was in the grip of a firestorm, the likes of which would not be experienced in Europe again until the aerial bombing campaigns of the Second World War. Wow, that's uh, so. It's a it's it's bad. It's really really bad. Well, when you think fire, and there were, there were two fires, in fact lasted seven days, uh, and when the, the flames were finally subdued, uh, there were 14 regions, regios, in Rome. And of those, three were totally destroyed, nothing left, absolutely nothing. And as you say, yeah, marble doesn't burn. Well, uh, guess what? Um, and uh, seven were substantially destroyed, a few... Uh, shells standing like uh, after a World War II uh, mm-hmm. uh, bombing raid. And um, there were only four that were left totally undamaged, and they were on the other side of the Tiber. So obviously, you know, they were protected by the river. Mm. So basically, you know, central Rome, uh, gone. Mm. And uh, uh, so it, the, the damage was massive. Mm. And, you know, this is a city with a population of at least a million people. Mm. And uh, as you say, um, uh, Nero had allowed the population to flee to the the, the, the uh, imperial gardens, and uh, so they became like refugee camps. Mm. And he's setting he sets up in the in the gardens of uh, Mycenae, uh, uh, in the the big villa that, that that was in the gardens, and turned that into his headquarters. But at the height of the fires, so he came back on the third day. Mm. He climbs the Esquiline Hill. And, and through the gardens of Mycenaeus and uh, to, the, to the tower of Mycenaeus. And it wasn't a long, thin tower. As you imagine, it was a very squat tower, a bit like the White Tower at the, at the, at the Tower of London, only three stories tall. And he and his entourage just stand on this, looking out over this just, yeah, to, to see a flame from one horizon to the other. Mm. Uh, and the, the Romans only had two firefighting methods. One was buckets. And so the uh, the uh, firefighters would rush to the, the nearest uh, fountain uh, with their buckets, their leather buckets, and then rush back and try it. Well, obviously, you know, these flames 100 foot high. Uh, it's not, not going to make much difference. The only other weapon they had uh, was uh, uh, demolishing buildings. And so they came in with these huge battering rams, military-style battering rams, and just pounded down buildings in the path of the fire. 
And they knew which you know, it was. It was a strong north wind behind it, so they knew you know, the direction it was coming from. And uh, Cassius Dio, uh, when he writes his, his account two centuries later, uh, makes this a, uh, an occasion for for blame of Nero. And then he knocked down all these buildings as well. You know, he wasn't satisfied with just burning down Rome. Yeah. You know, so Dio was one of these uh, one of the authors who was convinced that uh, Nero had had set the fire and uh, and then uh, set out to uh, to destroy Rome so he could rebuild it in his own name and call it Neronia. So, you know, that all these, uh, these uh, stories were, were, were floating around, even when the fire is still burning, because uh, there were men going around uh, when people were trying to put out the fires, civilians trying to put out the fires, men came around and said, you know, with weapons and said, uh, go away. You know. uh, and so the rumour was, oh, these, were, these are from uh, Nero. This, you know, uh, um, but um, uh, there's there a, a long record of landlords in Rome actually setting fires to destroy mm. their own apartment buildings so mm. they could bigger, build bigger and better and charge more rents. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it could well have been that, uh, you know, that uh, it was just landlords uh, perfectly content to see their real estate being destroyed so they could rebuild. They had no insurance in those days, mm. but uh, yeah, obviously they, they had a long-term view that we'll make more money by uh, uh, building our seven-storey apartment blocks, mm. if they were, uh, and, uh, and charging more rent. I remember even going back to the first triumvirate, Crassus had a reputation for setting fires and then having a private fire department as well that he could, uh, before Augustus obviously set up the Vigilis, but he could have his own private fire department come for a fee and uh, put the fire out at your building too. But he would also burn down his own buildings. This is going back, you know, a a century uh, earlier. It's a long tradition. Um, and in those, in those times too, uh, there, there was no formal firefighting arrangements, and so uh, city blocks uh, would get together. The owners would get together, and they would hire uh, so-called firemen. And but their only weapon was a bell. So they would patrol around, and if a fire broke out, they'd ring the bell at least to, to warn people so they could get out. Mm. But there was no organised firefight at that mm. time, as you say. Now you you write that there hadn't been a major fire in about twenty eight years in Rome, although they had many large fires before that. And what fascinated me um, most was you said that no regulations had been specified for how the water ducts could be used for firefighting. You would, you know, we think ancient Rome, water ducts, Agrippa, you know, the man, you know, he's he's building these things left, right and centre and proving ones that were already there. Rome, we think of today as just water, water everywhere, but not a drop to put out a fire with, apparently. what's well, That seems to be a little bit of an oversight. Yeah, uh, no regulations, or if they were, they were overlooked, or people were actually, uh, the water commissioner, uh, it was proven that several in a row took bribes uh, from people who, uh, so the water is delivered via the aqueducts throughout the city, uh, but even at the time of the Great Fire of Rome, it, it wasn't uh, the, the water didn't reach every part of the city, particularly the higher parts. Um, and so there were water piercers, and they would pierce the lead pipes as it passed overhead and put in their own pipes uh, quite illegally, and uh, would pay the water commissioner to look the other way. And so uh, you know, the, the water pressure and the amount of water that, that was coming through at the time of the Great Fire. Uh, was far less than it should have been. It's like uh, stories from America in the 80s and 90s of people tapping into someone else's electricity or someone else's cable, illegally exactly. channeling the cable. Yep. Um, now, 
Tacitus says the fire started in the northeastern section of the circus where it had joined the Palatine and the Caelian Hills. Flavius Sabinus, city prefect of Rome, took charge of the firefighting efforts. Is the older brother of Vespasian who's in uh, charge of uh, the fires. Fascinating. Now, the whole theory that Nero set, uh, you know, started the fires or or gave the orders to set the fires doesn't make a lot of sense if his own palace built down this thing that he had just spent all this time and effort designing, a lot of love, as you said, he thought of himself as a great architect. Uh, to just then go and burn it down makes it, very it, little it, sense. Yeah, you know, the, the paint was still you know, wet. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, on it. So uh, yes, it makes no sense at all. It was one of the first places to, to be. The, the the fire went up the Palatine Hill very quickly. So all the palaces and then his his uh, his new palace were destroyed very quickly. Uh, so it makes no sense at all. But another reason that they blamed uh, Nero, uh, so the fire burnt for five days and finally is under control, and then on the, the fifth day, breaks out again in an, an entirely new location. And that was the Basilica uh, or the Emilia uh, Basilica. Uh, and this and it was, in effect, a big shopping mall. Uh, yeah, and uh, it was owned by Tigellinus, one of his uh, Praetorian prefects. And so, oh, well, of course, then uh, so, you know, naturally, uh, Nero put him up to it. But again, they had no insurance, so Tigellinus, you know, going to suffer a huge loss. Mm. So it may seem no sense for him to start. Also, I mean, obviously, you know, to start it so obviously in his own property, uh, and uh, what? I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Um, and again, there was, they couldn't make an insurance claim, so, you know, he wasn't doing it for the insurance. It's not an Irish stock take, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As they um, say. So, uh, but, uh, you know, these stories just kept, uh, were kept alive um, during mm. the after the fire that Nero was behind it. Yeah. And it sounds to me like someone's starting these stories. Someone's yeah. pushing this, oh, yeah, Nero did it. Um, now, other things that shocked me that uh, I didn't know about reading your book, uh, Suetonius said that, Many of the books in Rome's libraries were destroyed by the fire. Yeah. We always think about the great uh, the destruction of the Library of Alexandria, but here we have, you know, how many uh, books just lost to these fires? It's a great tragedy. Well, um, they, they were able to evacuate the tabularium, uh-huh. uh, which was the official archives, mm. and uh, so all the official records were saved. And things like the unpu- Augustus's unpublished memoirs and mm-hmm. uh, Agrippina the Elder's unpublished memoirs and these sorts of mm. things, which the likes of Suetonius would later uh, refer to. Mm. Uh, but they most the the the, the initial efforts uh, were not directed at saving books, but at uh, saving the the treasures mm. uh, in the palaces and in the temples, uh, mm. like the solid gold chariot that was used in the uh, uh, in triumphs. Uh, going back to Augustus, this was mm. saved, and and so on. Mm. Mm. Um- this other theory that uh, you know that you always hear about um, that that Nero started the fire because he wanted to rebuild Rome and and, and name it Neroni and all this kind of stuff. Like he's he's Nero. If he wanted to take large swathes of land to rebuild on, surely he could just go. I'm taking that now to exactly. rebuild on it. It's, exactly. He doesn't need to burn the place down secretly. No. To take it, he's the it, he owns it all anyway. He's the yeah. emperor. It's that's par for the course. 
you know, it doesn't stand up to the slightest bit of critical thinking, in my opinion. But uh, as he's, these stories are coming back to him, that he's uh, receiving the blame, um, and he's he's become very busy. Uh, he's no longer bored because uh, he uh, comes up with Rome's first building regulations. Never mm. been any building regulations. You could build what you like, where you like. So the mm. streets had, had wound all over the place, uh, which had made firefighting and escape from the fire um, quite difficult. We don't get any figures from any any source on the actual number of people killed. Uh, mm. It's agreed that some died, but not huge numbers. When you think a year before, 30,000 people at Rome, including Nero's own daughter, uh, had been killed by a plague. We don't know mm. what that the, the, the nature of that was. Um, uh, so that uh, uh, there's no comparison made. So maybe a few hundred, maybe a few thousand people uh, were killed in the fire. Uh, certainly in the in the first five days of the fire. And Dio, who who is you know, very critical of of Nero, he says that uh, the majority of the people that were killed were the elderly who refused to leave their homes. Yeah, which you know, it's a scenario you know, which rings true today. You know, older people mm. don't want to leave their properties you know, in bushfires or wildfires. Mm-hmm. Thrill, mm. um, but the vast majority of people were able to escape. So mm. the, the loss of life was low. Mm. So uh, so Nero actually brings in Rome's first building regulations. Uh, he, uh, he he learns of these discrepancies in the water supply and, and brings in new regulations there, uh, and um, uh, enhances the city. Uh, but the elite complain when he creates these wide boulevards to replace the winding alleys. Uh, they say, um, oh, no, uh, this will let too much sun in. This was not what would be good for our health. Mm. Uh, mm. So, so it didn't matter what he did, the, mm. uh, the elite uh, were going to criticise him. Mm. Mm. Yeah, he, according to um, what I read in your book, he really thinks, he seems to think, okay, well, here's an opportunity for us to redesign uh, a bit like uh, Baron uh, What's-His-Face did in Paris in the 1800s, we're going to redesign broad streets, lots of open spaces. He uh, comes up with uh, incentives for speed, incentives for people to do this quickly and get it rebuilt. You, you will get a bounty if you rebuild your property uh, within a certain time. Yeah. And, and but to his regulations, one of the regulations is that you've got to have a portico out the front of your house mm-hmm. and the porticos will be linked. And one of the reasons for that is so the firefighters can get on the roof of the portico to fire, fight fires on the upper floors. You know, it's Brilliant. Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Seneca's like long gone really from official life at this stage. So yeah. who's advising him on this stuff? These, these um, architects you mentioned it, earlier? It, it would appear to be the, the, the two architects, mm. uh, again, who were disliked by the elite because they had so much influence with him. Mm. Uh, with, with Nero, yeah, mm. you're right. Seneca, uh, five years earlier, had retired, mm. and um, uh, after the fire, uh, Nero asked uh, the rich and all the provinces to uh, send money for the rebuilding of Rome, which of course they did. Mm. Uh, uh, Lyon in in uh, in France, in today's France, uh, sent four million sesterces uh, toward the fund immediately, and then they had their own dreadful fire that. Winter and so Nero sent back the four million sesterces. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, so the money the money poured in uh, from around the empire. And uh, but Seneca was invited by uh, Nero to come and, uh, and and have a role in the in the you know, rebuilding. But he was worried. He was 
one of Rome's richest men. Uh, it's said that one of the causes of the, the, the uh, Boudican revolt in Britain was the fact that Seneca had called in his loans to the tribes mm. uh, and uh, they, you know, they didn't have the money and, and didn't want to repay. Mm. And um, so he was worried that uh, Nero was, was going to uh, force him to cough up a lot of his own money toward mm. the rebuilding fund. Mm. So he then uh, he, uh, he claimed illness and so Nero left him to it mm. until the following year when the, the Piso plot emerges mm. uh, against mm. Nero's life and, and mm. Seneca is connected to that. Mm-hmm. So he um, he creates all these incentives. Uh, he offers prayers to Vulcan, the god of fire, and Juno, the goddess of protection and homes. Uh, seems like reasonable prayers to be issued at this stage. And then this Sibylline prophecy is discovered that uh, says that a mother killer will be the last of the sons of Aeneas. Uh, seems to make the rounds. Um, now, uh, what, do you, what do you make of all of this? Um, one of the leading, uh, there were 15 priests who supervised the civilian books and one of them later turned out to be a, a, an arch enemy uh, of Nero. So, uh, and the, the, the books were never revealed to the public. So if it was said that a, you know, a civilian prophecy was such and such, uh, then uh, there was no way of pro- proving or disproving. Yeah. And uh, now, so um, the, the family, uh, Nero's family, claimed descent to Aeneas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that connection. And he did <laughs> uh, have his own mother killed uh, mm-hmm. in uh, uh, some years, uh, several years earlier, uh, which seemed to have played on his mind for the rest of his life and, and mm-hmm. made him a little bit uh, demented. And in mm-hmm. fact, drove him toward the, uh, the cult of Isis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the mother god, and uh, he became a, a. In fact, he described himself as the, the consort of Isis, as uh, mm-hmm. Serapis, and uh, he embraced uh, the, you know, the the worship of Isis after his mother's death. And some authors have suggested it was because of his just overwhelming guilt at having engineered his own mother's murder. Mm. Uh, he, he had had her murdered because she became so. Manipulative to the extent that she would invite him into her, her own bed to to, uh, to get her away, mm. uh, which he declined. Mm. Um, uh, so he had her. Uh, he had a very intricate plot to have her drowned. He presented her with a boat after dinner, and as she was being rowed home, you know, or more of a ship than a boat, and as she was being rowed home, someone pulled a lever and the boat fell apart. Uh, you know, uh, we discussed this briefly when we were talking about Constantine at the bridge, and the, and the bridge was the lever, which and the, and the, uh, the Milvian bridge fell apart. Mm. Uh, but she was picked up and taken to shore, and so the admiral, whose clever idea it had been to uh, uh, engineer her murder in this way, was told by Nero, go and finish her off, so he had to go with a sword, mm. kill the emperor's mother. So mm. he uh, it was um, uh, he he was rid of of, of her influence, but uh, yeah, uh, he was haunted by her her, mm. her memory. So throwing himself into into the worship of Isis was seen as one way of uh, of uh, trying to absolve himself until his own daughter died, and mm. uh, a year before the Great Fire, and uh, suddenly he turned against Isis. Mm. And uh, uh, he, he, it didn't prevent others from worship, worshiping it, but he just it was, uh, overnight ceased uh, to be a, f- a follower of, uh, of, of ISIS. 
I want to talk more about the cult of ISIS and his relationship to it when, in a second. But before we get to that, I want to talk about these uh, the rumours, more about the rumours about Nero and his starting to find the playing of the fiddle, the lyre, et cetera. So yeah. Cassius Dio, as you mentioned, writing 160-odd years later, said that he played the lyre while Rome burned. And you said earlier he'd been playing it on the night of the fire. So Technically, he was playing. He was. He wasn't aware, maybe, that the fire was happening, and he was fifty kilometers away. But yes, but that's not the way that we it gets passed down to us. We we imagine that he's standing overlooking the fire, giggling maniacally while he's uh, playing the fiddle or the lyre. Yeah, the fiddle wasn't uh, wasn't invented for another thousand years. Yes, Tacitus writes these acts, though popular, produce no effect. This is uh, where he's trying to help out after the fire when he gets back. Since a rumour had gone forth everywhere that at the very time when the city was in flames, the emperor appeared on a private stage and sang of the destruction of Troy, comparing present misfortunes with the calamities of antiquity. Now, you suggested earlier that that's what he was singing about the night the fire broke out when he was in antiquity. Two two sources saying he was, the song he sang, uh, was about the, uh, the fall of Troy. Suetonius said he was talking, uh, sang a song uh, about the uh, fall of uh, uh, Illyria. Um, yeah. Again, a, 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 you know, a, a, a well-known story to, to Romans of, of the time. Mm. Uh, maybe he sang about both. You know, he, he performed uh, yeah, uh, at, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, at Naples. But according to, I think, Tacitus, uh, he, he performed the same song at, at both uh, contests. So, yeah, but, the, but the, this idea that he was performing these while watching the fire with glee, mm. not really yeah. backed up at all by no. the historical sources. This is something that's kind of, I don't know, it's 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 transmogrified over the last couple of thousand years to this and, mythology. And also, Several sources report when he gets to the Tower of Mycenaeus and watches the fire uh, below, and uh, those sources say that he made a comment something about its its beauty or the the majesty of the fire. Um, I can imagine you know, if we were confronted with that with that vision, perhaps we would you know with these. Yeah, flames, perhaps a hundred or several hundred feet in the air, and curling, and and uh, yeah, it would have it would have had a a, 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 a horrible beauty to it. So mm. it's quite possible he'd made a comment like that. But of course, mm. uh, his his uh, his critics uh, latched onto that mm. and uh, and uh, made it as if he was enjoying the fire and and uh, watching uh, the product of his own uh, yeah, his own uh, planning. Mm. Yeah, Suetonius says Nero watched the conflagration from the Tower of Messinus, enraptured by what he called the beauty of the flames, yeah. then put on his tragedi- tragedian's costume and sang the Sacavillium from beginning to end. Yeah, uh, yeah possibly. Uh, yeah, that, I don't think so. I don't uh, think so. Yeah. <laughs> Dio writes, after this, Nero set his heart on accomplishing what a doubtless well, Can we just always- go back to that? Back, back mm. to Suetonius. He, th- mm. he then, then said for the next few days... Um, that Nero locked himself away, uh, and, and, and deeply depressed, uh, singing sad songs to himself. Mm. Uh, uh, so, okay, so he 
he's, he's singing joyful songs, celebrating the fire, but then he locks himself away for several days, the same author says, and sings sad songs, depressed and sad about what, what's happened. Can it be both? <laughs> Maybe if he's bipolar, but... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I mean, there's some possibility in the story that he set fire to it. Maybe he didn't intend to burn his own palaces down and it just got out of control. Maybe he did this. Like, there's a lot of maybes in here, but, you know, the the, the way it strikes me, Stephen, is that, you've you know there's a range of scenarios here and the one where that we're more familiar with of the uh evil tyrant uh, gleefully setting fire to it and giggling away playing the fiddle is is a stretch i mean it's that possible is. but it's a real stretch when you go back yeah. and look at the original sources yeah. yes dio writes after this nero set his heart on accomplishing what had doubtless always been his desire namely to make an end of the whole city and realm during his lifetime at all events he like others before him used to call priam wonderfully fortunate in that he had seen his country and his throne destroyed together Accordingly, he secretly sent out men who pretended to be drunk or engaged in other kinds of mischief and caused them at first to set fire to one or two or even several buildings in different parts of the city so that the people were at their wits end, not being able to find any beginning of the trouble nor to put an end to it, though they constantly were aware of many strange sights and sounds, for there was naught to be seen but many fires as in a camp and naught to be heard from the talk of the people except such exclamations as, this or that is a fire. Where? How did it happen? Who kindled it? Help! While the whole population was in this state of mind and many, crazed by the disaster, were leaping into the very flames, Nero ascended to the roof of the palace from which there was the best general view of the greater part of the conflagration and assuming the lyre player's garb, saying the capture of Troy as he styled the song himself, though to the eyes of the spectators, it was the capture of Rome. Now, how could he be standing on the roof of the palace if it had already burnt down? Exactly, yes, yes. (laughs) By the time we got back to Rome, uh, we know, uh, you know his own palace was gone. So yeah, we can cross that one off. Yeah, and, and it's important, I think, to remind everyone that, you know, historians today, when we read Suetonius and Dio in particular, we know that they're not writing history with a capital H as you write history. Then that wasn't the purpose of what they were writing. These were sort of more loose morality tales you look at Suetonius's lives, both of the Caesars and the great lives. He's he's it's trying half to half history. Yeah, and it's and it's he's trying to it's it's like he's trying to teach people great lessons by looking at historical characters and you know just trying to tease out. I don't know. Um, this is what good people do. This is what bad people do. And Nero ends up on the bad side of things often. And he had a bestseller on his hands at the time, so yeah, yeah. he was uh, yeah. he was a clever author. Yeah, and like a lot of these stories, I mean, I, I put the New Testament uh, into this um, category as well. These this is this is a popular genre uh, of writing back then. It's it's to take stories from history that people may have heard about or somewhat familiar with and then change them up, maybe put the words of one person into the mouth of another or the actions of one person into the mouth of another to try and create some sort of a cohesive story where somebody's 
teaching how to live a good life or, or, you know, how to get power or whatever it is. You know, it's not to be read as serious history. It's yeah. well, they didn't yeah. even they didn't even have the concept of what serious history was back then. It wasn't an academic pursuit. No. And uh, yeah, they were interested in book sales. And uh, uh, and both Sultanius and uh, Dio uh, were work, uh, basing their works uh, not on their own research, but on the books of earlier authors. Mm. And one of them was a, a chap by the name of uh, Rusticus. And who should be introducing Nero at the singing contests on the night of the fire is Rusticus, who mm. was very much in Nero's uh, inner circle, having been a client of Seneca. Now, mm-hmm. Seneca, as we mentioned earlier, has retired. Uh, and Rusticus is, is uh, through that connection is, is, is now very well connected. So uh, he literally, uh, yeah, and ladies and gentlemen, may I present the emperor mm-hmm. uh, singing. And uh, so uh, he was very close to Nero. But the mm-hmm. year following the fire, as I mentioned, um, uh, there was this Piso plot, uh, mm-hmm. a very serious plot involving a number of senators. Uh, and because uh, Piso, uh, the, the chief of the plot, had been a client of Seneca, Seneca was involved. Um, and my my read on Seneca's involvement was that he wasn't an initiator, but he did learn about it. And when he did, he started to have thoughts that maybe he could act literally uh, replace Nero. And mm. so he he didn't discourage the plot. Mm. Well, mm. Nero finds out about this and and gives him the option of uh, uh, of a trial or taking his own life, and uh, which Seneca did. But after that, Rusticus, being a friend of Se- uh, Seneca's, is on the outer with Nero. Mm. And so when he writes his history, mm-hmm. um, uh, it is violently, apparently, anti-Nero. Mm. Uh, anything he could uh, he could uh, think or, or or write about uh, Nero that was negative, he would he he put it on paper. Mm. And so these later writers had these types of uh, sources. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. Rusticus's work, as so many, like so many works of, of that era, uh, have not come down to us. Mm-hmm. So we don't know precisely what he said. But certainly, Dio had that, uh, and uh, Suetonius had, had the, that to uh, to base their uh, allegations on. And I often think, you know, reading these guys uh, talk about history is similar to reading William Shakespeare and thinking you're reading history. Yeah, uh, particularly something like Richard the Third where, you know, they're writing after the Caesars have gone and have been replaced by the, the Flavians or later emperors in Dio's case. And, they're, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a propaganda line here between the former regime, the original regime and the new regimes, and, you know, they need to portray the ex-regime in a particular light, particularly the last you know, Richard III is depicted in Shakespeare as being a maniacal, tyrannical, loony tune, and it's wonderful to read now is the winter of our discontent oh, made glorious summer by the son of a York. Yes. Was there ever a woman in this humour wooed? Was ever a woman in this humour won? I, I'll have her, but I shall not keep her long. Like, it's brilliant, but it's fictional. We know today, yeah. we think we know that Richard III wasn't this evil guy. Yeah, he had a hump or some sort of a physical deformity, but he's depicted. So same sort of thing. Um now you 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 reminded me of something in your book that I'd forgotten about. You say um, Suetonius started writing his book during the reign of Hadrian, yeah. when uh, in charge of the uh, the library. He had access to the tabularium, the official yeah. archives, but then he 
had only written about Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and Tiberius Caesar when he fell out of favour with Hadrian. For apparently offending the empress. And lost access to the official histories. So So, everything after Tiberius, yeah. yeah, It it becomes very much uh, based on other authors or just pure gossip. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, you say that in his biography about Nero, he often says things like, some say, or according to my informants, (laughs) or as it is said, which is basically a Donald Trump technique, right? Some people say... I'm yep. the greatest president that ever lived. Like that's yeah. it's a. <laughs> I often think reading these guys too, they care as much as as much about historical accuracy as the History Channel yeah. does. It's kind of it's Lucy popular kind of thing. Entertainment, yeah, historical yeah. entertainment. Yeah. Um, Flavius Josephus, the uh, Jewish rabbi, um, obviously a favourite. Uh, with Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. In fact, uh, there was there was a Vespasian. He actually said he thought was the the uh, Messiah. Um, uh, well, yeah, well, one version, but he certainly predicted that uh, that uh, Vespasian and his son Titus would both become emperor. Mm. Um, I, th- I think it was a, a, a throw of the dice to save his own life, and it worked. Yeah, it and worked. We, yeah. Yeah, thankfully, <laughs> they both did become emperors and became his patrons. Yeah, if their uh, enemies and- had become emperors, he wouldn't have probably worked out as well for him. Yes, and uh, it's interesting that uh, Josephus wrote uh, several histories uh, uh, in Rome. It, it's believed he was actually at Rome and during the Great Fire of Rome. He'd, he'd uh, uh, gone there to put a case to, for uh, several uh, leading Jewish figures in Judea uh, before Nero and, uh, and and won his case. Uh, but it's believed he was actually there at the fire. And uh, he, when he wrote his uh, his histories, uh, he made no reference to uh, to Nero being uh, behind the fire. And in fact, and he had, apart from the fact that Nero had found in his favour in, in, in this particular legal case, he had no reason to be uh, you know, a fan of, of Nero. Uh, but he said uh, that you know, there were so many authors of his day who set out deliberately to defame Nero after his death uh, with falsehoods and, uh, uh, you know, so we have it from an author of the day that there were many sources that, that, that you know, uh, came up with all these falsehoods about Nero. Mm. He writes, there have been a great many who have composed the history of Nero, some of whom have departed from the factual truth because of favour having received benefits from him, while others, out of hatred for him and the great ill will that they bore him, have so impudently raved against him with their lies that they justly deserve to be condemned. Nor am I surprised by those who have written lies about Nero, since in their writings they have not preserved the historical truth regarding those events that took place in prior times, even when the subjects of those works could have in no way incurred their hatred since those writers lived long after their day. Um, as far as those authors who have no interest in the truth are concerned, they can write what they like, for that is what they delight in doing. Now, I have to say that Josephus liked to stretch the truth uh, uh, from time to time as well. I know in his History of the Jews. I remember Ray and I did a long series on Alexander the Great, and I found this section in Josephus where he says when Alexander went to Judea, he worshipped Yahweh and acknowledged him as the greatest of all gods and the only God and all this kind of stuff. When Josephus was was, was writing uh, uh, his early history of the Jews, 
um, he would not allow God to talk to women. So even though the <laughs> the Old Testament talks on several occasions when God uh, supposedly spoke to women, uh, Josephus wasn't having that. So he actually changed <laughs> the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> Improved on it, yeah. I think is how he put it at the time, yeah. Well, God couldn't talk to women. Yeah, that, that's not right. Yeah, so all of these guys, you have to take them with a grain of salt, really. Yes. It's, you know, we, we always say, look, this is what they say, you know, but how far you should believe this, you know, it's, it's a judgment call. And the other problem we have as well is that all these uh, classical texts, the versions that have come down to us, uh, were, uh, were copies written uh, often hundreds of years, uh, uh, perhaps even a thousand of so years after the, the original was written. Mm. Uh, there was no printing, there were no printing presses in Roman mm. times, nor was there was any law of copyright. So, mm. you know, I, I feel for the authors of the day. So an author would uh, have uh, a slave sitting writing by hand uh, 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 books in scroll form and then send them to the local bookshop and have them uh, sold. Uh, but anybody could um, get that book and then get their own slaves to write it and, and, and sell it themselves, mm. and uh, the author received no recompense. Mm. Uh, so uh, down through history, it was very easy in these uh, transcriptions to change a fact here or to there or uh, leave things out. Mm. Uh, we know this in uh, in Caesar's uh, uh, biography. Uh, there, you, know, uh, you come across uh, occasions where he said, as I said earlier, well, he didn't say in the in the version that's come down to us. That's gone. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the slab's been taken out mm-hmm. uh, by his editor, who was his chief secretary after Caesar's death. Uh, he clearly took things out which he didn't think were fa- favourable to, to Caesar. Mm-hmm. So the, there's this opportunity to change these texts uh, mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. time. And of course, speaking of Josephus, the the most famous interpolation there is when he talks about. Jesus being the Messiah, and as historians today point out, very unlikely that a Jewish rabbi would say such things. So that's obviously been added at some point by a Christian scribe hundreds, thousand years later. And, you know, of course, with a lot of, you know, Ray and I, uh, we we do a series on the Renaissance, and and we've done a lot of of talking about... um, the, the ancient manuscripts that uh, did survive the destruction of the Library of Alexandria or, or the burning of the libraries of Rome um, end up in monasteries during the Dark Ages. And if they're non-Christian texts, they're not the, the, not the highest priority to... You have to copy these things every 100 years or 200 years because they, they start to fall they're apart. Yeah. yeah, written on vellum and these sorts of things. And... <clears throat> animal skins to ride on. Papyrus was long gone by this stage because the trade routes had broken down with Egypt. Um, vellum is very expensive and difficult to produce, so you, or, or you have to clean off uh, the, the, the ink off old books and, and uh, old parchments or, or vellum and write them again. So if, if, if you've got the, um, if you're the abbot of a monastery and you have to decide between copying some sort of pagan nonsense in your views or a Christian book, you're going to copy the Christian book. And so a lot of these books disappeared, but the ones, like if there are several different versions of, let's say, Tacitus, one where he does say Jesus is the Messiah, one where he doesn't, the one that's going to get copied 
by the and next generation of scribes 200 years later yeah. is the one that says Jesus was the Messiah. The ones that don't say that, well, that's obviously, that's problematic. We won't even bother to do that. And, and where, where in you know, more recent times have these old copies been found in monasteries and religious libraries? Some of the older ones? Yeah. Yeah. Like so the, 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 the version of, you know, of Tacitus that we have today uh, yeah, came from, from a, oh. you know, a, a Christian library. Yes, but when you say in recent times, we're talking Poggio oh, Bracciolini yeah. in the 1300s. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's Bracciolini, I think, who found these books. And, you know, yeah. we still have like his Caligula stuff missing. And conveniently, yeah. his area where he would have covered the life of Jesus or Jesus yeah. uh, causing problems. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still gone. waiting in hopes that this is going to be rediscovered. Yeah, yeah, aren't we all? Yes, it would be wonderful. Um, so let's let's move on to the blame section yeah. here. So famously, we believe we we've been told that Nero um, martyred the Christians of Rome, made them the the scapegoats for the fire. Where did that belief originate? Uh, my belief, and uh, I mean, if you read the Encyclopedia Britannica and their reference to Nero and the Great Fire, they express the belief uh, that uh, this is an interpolation, uh, that, uh, and it was a very simple one because it, uh, it talks about uh, the Christians did this, Nero did this to the Christians, this happened to the Christians. If you change the word Christian to Egyptians, which was the broad term for followers of ISIS, it makes a great deal more sense. And uh, it's my belief, and I express it in my book, The Great Fire of Rome, uh, that uh, uh, Tacitus wrote that uh, uh, Nero searching for someone to blame with, with all these stories coming back that he's being receiving the blame, besides having uh, lost all faith in ISIS, uh, to blame the followers of ISIS. Now, we know there were thousands at Rome at the time. number of Christians at Rome at, in, in AD 64 could probably count on the fingers of one hand. Mm. Um, uh, when uh, Paul is, is writing to you know, Christians at Rome, he names three, you know, Pudens or Claudia and, and another. Um, very few Christians at Rome at the time of the Great Fire. Mm. And yet Cassius Dio says that multitudes were arrested and uh, and uh, and punished. Uh, there were not multitudes of Christians at Rome to be. Yeah, there uh, weren't multitudes uh, of Christians anywhere in '64. No. I mean, it was it when, was when a think, very tiny breakaway Jewish personality cult. Yeah, when you think in the fourth century, uh, it, it, it's believed about five percent of the, the, the population throughout the empire were Christians. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 AD '64, it was very small, and also the Christian Church was much stronger, even in the time of Constantine in the 4th century, much stronger in the East than in the West. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so um, uh, the idea that there were multitudes of Christians at Rome mm. uh, to be arrested and punished and blamed for the, the Great Fire, um, it, it stretches uh, credulity. Suetonius says punishments were also inflicted on the Christians, a sect professing a new and mischievous religious belief. Um, would the cult of ISIS be classified as new, new no. to Rome? Yeah. Maybe. So, yeah, I, I, I suspect that's uh, uh, another interpolation. Uh, right. Yeah, just just to to you know, to um, in passing, I think that way. 
Right. Tacitus says, consequently, to get rid of the report that he had started the fires, Nero fastened the guild and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skin of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. There are so many problems in this section. Let's let's pick them apart one at a time. Um, Okay, so a class hated for their abominations. As we've just said, they were they must have been practically unknown by everybody in 64. And also they weren't called Christians at that time. It was only in the second century that the term time the term was applied in the East and uh, as a derogatory uh, term. So they weren't known as Christians in the first century. Although the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, which most scholars think was written probably 80, 90 CE, does say that they were called Christians and that the term first started as a derogatory term. Yep. So yep. how do you pass that? Um, well, it was not common, not a common term. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, it was known, and, but, yeah, again, it was, it was – but the whole thing that gets me here is this class hatred. Yeah. No one had heard of Christians in no. Rome at this stage. Like, well, as you said, like a million people, there's probably, look, at best, I would say maybe 50 Christians out of a, out of a million people. No one's heard of these people no. at this stage. No. It's ridiculous. And, and uh, as far as the Romans were concerned, it was just another Jewish sect. Yes. So they, were, and, they referred to them as Jews. And the second part, problem I have with this section, Christus from whom the name had its origin. Now, as we know, and people who have seen my film know, Christus is just the Greek version of Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one, which is the name that was given to a a king or somebody or a rabbi, somebody who was seen to be special and they got anointed with oil. Now, for now, anyone who knew Greek, as obviously Tacitus knows Greek, knows that Christus isn't a name, Christ isn't a name, it's an it's a title, title yeah. and it's a title that was relatively common in Judea. As I said before, Josephus, you know, uh, um, whatever, 70 years supposedly after Jesus uh, said he thought Vespasian might be the Messiah, uh, recently did a book review, a um, friend of our show here, Lindsay Powell's got a new book just come out on the Bar Kokhba Revolts uh, yeah. 136, Bar Kokhba was thought to be the Messiah. There yeah. were Messiahs in Josephus going back to, you know, uh, around the time of Augustus. Uh, you know, th- th- this this appellation of the Messiah, the Christ, was not unique. It was not a name. It was just like, which, which Christ are you talking about, yeah. Tacitus, when you say it just doesn't strike me as something Tacitus is going to, Right. He doesn't think Christ is a name. That's something that, 
you know, somebody who, you know, a latest Christian scribe, later Christian scribe who doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that it's an appellation of a Messiah and there were lots of Messiahs, they, they just, just sort of brush over. As today, most Christians don't understand that Messiah means, uh, you know, uh, uh, the anointed one and it, it was supposed to be a warrior king. Yeah, and also the, the, the followers of, of Jesus, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, and the, the followers of Jesus in the first century were known as the Nazarenes. So if Tacitus had genuinely heard about him, it, it's likely he may have referred to him as uh, the Nazarene and the, his followers as the Nazarenes. But, Nazarene uh, sect, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So, so again, the, the, the evidence uh, of, of a, a much later uh, interpolation uh, referencing uh, yeah, the, Christ, the Christos uh, is, uh, is, is 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 pretty pretty uh, strong. Um, so and then he, uh, then he says Pontius Pilate was a procurator. Yeah, when he wasn't, as we when know from inscriptions, that he he was a a prefect, and uh, so. Uh, you know, Tacitus was was pretty accurate with with so much of his work, and then to get that wrong, yeah, maybe, maybe, but it just it just doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense that he doesn't was writing ring, all these true. things. And it's not yeah. like there's one problem; there's problem after problem after problem here. Then he goes on to say an immense multitude was convicted, as you said before. Yeah. Ridiculous, like absolutely yeah. ridiculous. There'd be an immense multitude. Then and, we, and the fact that, that some were crucified, you know, taken by Christians and Christian authors to say, see, see, they, you know, did that deliberately in mockery of, of, of Jesus Christ. No, crucifixion was the standard form of execution, apart from being sent to the arena to be eaten by the animals, mm. um, for any non citizen convicted of a capital crime. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that wasn't anything extraordinary. Yeah. Then he, he says, covered with the skins of beasts, torn by dogs, etc. Now, uh -huh. this yeah, is which always... Brings us, which <laughs> yeah. brings us to the followers of ISIS. Yeah, explain that to folks. So the priests of ISIS eschewed any connection with uh, uh, animal products. So the food, they didn't eat any, you know, they were vegetarians. And they wouldn't even wear... Uh, clothes that uh, had a connection, so no leather belts, no leather shoes. So they wore the simple linen uh, smock and papyrus sandals. And so the word mockery is used in there. So it would be uh, a, 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 a mockery if the followers of ISIS uh, were clothed in the skin of beasts and then torn to pieces by dogs. I mean, that that's the sort of sick joke that a hater of the followers of ISIS would come up with. And mm. also the, the priests of ISIS uh, at, in religious processions wore the uh, a mask with the face of Anubis, the, uh, the Egyptian uh, dog god. Mm. So these dog connections and animal connections and animal skins uh, make a lot of sense when you mm. check out the word Christians and, just, uh, and, and insert the word Egyptians. Mm. All of a sudden that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's wrap up with a conclusion here. Let's jump in the TARDIS, go back to see what really happened. Uh, oh, no, before I get to that, I want to uh, finish one other thing. Um, 666 or yeah. 616. Yeah. Now, um, you you mentioned um, earlier on that uh, there were these pseudo-Neros who were popping up um, uh, after he was long gone. Scholars today tend to think that the reference to uh, the Antichrist, which is a whole other issue, but in the book of Revelation, 
uh, which we, we, we tend to think of as being 666. The oldest version of the Book of Revelation now actually seems to say it was 616. And scholars these days tend to think that was some sort of code for Nero. They believe that Nero was going to come back. It's, it's not, not a broadly held belief, but there are some really? out there who have, have uh, you know, uh, taken that uh, interpretation and labelled uh, Nero as the Antichrist. Right. You know, I, I often tell people, though, that, um, you know, the, the, the Christ was the, you know, as we said before, the Messiah was the Jewish uh, warrior king who was going to come and, uh, you know, bring about <clears throat> the removing the, the oppressors from Judea and bring about peace on earth and the universal worship of Yahweh and those sorts of things. Jesus didn't do any of those things. And in fact, his followers ended up oppressing the Jews so, and, and uh, you know, making the, the Gentiles the authorities on this. So and actually, I argue that Jesus is the Antichrist okay. because he, he did the opposite of that. Yeah. He oppressed, he brought about more oppression of the Jews. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not very popular, but anyway, I, that's my theory yeah. on that. So what do you think really happened? Let's, let's, Cap this all up with your version of the story. Of the Great Fire of Rome, mm. uh, a, on the night of July 19, a, a cooking fire in one of the many cafes in the uh, uh, porticos beneath the uh, Circus Maximus uh, gets out of control, goes up into the wooden rafters above, spreads the, the shops, uh, it goes higher. The Circus Maximus was built on a, on a stone foundation, but all the upper tiers... Uh, at that stage, it, it could see 150, perhaps 185,000 people. All the upper tiers were built from timber, and timber which was exposed to sunlight, you know, for for, for, for decades and you know, prior to that. So they would have been dry and brittle, and there was a strong north wind. And so, as soon as the flames got up into this this the the wooden seating, it just uh, engulfed the uh, the Circus Maximus. You can imagine uh, then it jumping to um, uh, to the residential parts surrounding. Uh, the Circus Maximus, and uh, so it was an accidental fire. Uh, it uh, spread quickly. Um, the opponents of Nero latched onto it as as a who um, uh, wanted to remove him, obviously, uh, as a way of um, bringing him down. And uh, so I, I think unfairly he was blamed for lighting the fire, mm. and he genuinely wanted to rebuild the city and, and help the people. And uh, and when he could, when he saw that uh, he, these stories weren't going away, the blame was placed on his shoulders. Uh, he uh, around November, we think the the uh, uh, fire took place in in July. The next major games, the uh, the games of Caesar's Caesar's victory games in November, uh, are likely to have been the time when he uh, enacted this uh, savage uh, reprisals against. Uh, what I believe to be the the followers of ISIS, uh, to say, look, they were to blame, and uh, so you know, that in a nutshell, I think is the the story of the, the Great Fire of Rome. Well done. I I, I mean, I w I did mean to say that one thing that I think um, uh, one fact that I think does. Um, make me think that some of the Christians might have been involved is, as I think we talked about in the Constantine show, this early Christianity, well, and for a long time, Christianity was a, was a doomsday cult, still is, really. 
it's a, an apocalyptic doomsday cult that has always, uh, you know, been um, eagerly awaiting the end of the world. And particularly back then, it was very strong. I mean, as I point out in my film, Paul, all of the writings in the New Testament from Paul all through to the Gospels, all basically saying the world's going to end in our lifetime and they can't wait really because oh. they're going to be the ones that rise, risen up and take it to heaven. And all. So they, they kind of were really excited about the end of the world. It wouldn't surprise me if some of them decided just to burn the whole place down and try and bring about the end of the world by taking matters into their own hands. But uh, I think your story does make a lot of sense, the, particularly when you get to the multitudes and the dogs and all of this other kind of stuff. All right. Well, I highly recommend it if people are interested in this. And it is one of the great um, events in history, one of the most, uh, you know, misunderstood and, you know, cataclysmic events in history. I recommend people grab that. The Great Fire of Rome by Stephen Dando Collins, along with the Constantine book that we talked about last time. Again, another monumental episode in history, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and the legalization of Christianity that followed, which then led to the rise of um, the, the uh, Christian theocracy that lasted for a millennia. Um, and all of his other 4,363 books, including the one he's working on right now, which is a secret, but uh, <laughs> will be out, I'm sure, next year. Thank you hey, again. Thanks again for coming on and chatting. It's always a lot of fun, Stephen. Thanks, Cam. Been a pleasure. Okay. We're done. <laughs>